Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Dr. Haley Lewis. Haley is a chartered coaching psychologist and a registered occupational psychologist. Her expertise and day-to-day work is in the psychology of work and organizations, in particular, how leadership and management behavior impacts culture and performance. Haley leads Halo Psychology, which focuses on helping public sector managers with difficult problems in the workplace. She is also a program director for the Master of Research Program at Birkbeck, which is part of the University of London, is an honorary lecturer at City University of London, and is a dissertation supervisor at Arden University. Her prior experience includes work with Kingston and Coventry Universities, Croydon Council, and the BBC. Haley earned a bachelor's degree in social sciences from the University of Leicester, a master's degree in organizational behavior from the City University of London, and her doctorate in organizational psychology from Birkbeck. She is also a volunteer with the British Psychological Society. Haley has been shortlisted for and has won several awards for her work, both as a psychologist and as a public sector leader. In recent years, she's been awarded Associate Fellowship with the British Psychological Society and become a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. She lives in the greater London area. Welcome. It's great to have you on the show. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with what you're doing with Halo. Why don't you talk a little bit about that first? Yeah, so it's one of my many hats that that I wear. So Halo Psychology is my business. It's a consultancy, just about to celebrate my seventh birthday. And so the work that I do through Halo is split into a kind of a number of camps. Around 50% of my work is executive coaching. And that's it with everyone from that first time manager. They've never, they've managed or led before all the way up to kind of chief exec managing director level. And then the other 50% of, of work is split between leadership and management development kind of program. So either designing kind of full programs or delivering parts of team building, often leadership team building and team development within that kind of 50%. And then the odd smattering of kind of strategy work. So when I worked in corporate roles, I often had strategy roles. um, Mm. And so I've kind of taken that with me, but but I don't do huge amounts of that because I like to be there on the ground with people kind of affecting change in, in real time. So how much overall does that translate into in terms of how much of the work you do is with companies and how much of it's with individuals? At the moment, I would say around 85% is with organizations. So I might work with individuals, but they're, it's the right. organization that's kind of come to me. In terms of individuals who approach me directly as a private client, i.e. they're paying for themselves 
that's increased. So that's around 15%. And that's increased, particularly over the last few years on the back of my research. So I'm doing kind of increasing numbers of business coaching, particularly with women who are either wanting to set up their first business or they're in that kind of early startup phase, like like the kind of first couple of years. Your LinkedIn profile talks about how you help your clients, managers, and organizations overcome seemingly impossible problems. So what are some of the seemingly impossible problems that they come to you with? I work across all sectors with companies from around the world, although a big focus for me, I kind of UK-based companies, but my heart is with the public sector. Um, yeah. speaks to my values. I ended up in the public sector for longer than I intended. And so a large part of my work is with the public sector. And so often when I'm working with managers all the way through to senior leaders, particularly in local government, for example, that in, in seemingly insurmountable problem is we need to find more savings, but we still need mm. to do the work because politicians and residents and and kind of service users need us to do the work, but we don't have any money we're not going to get more funding. So kind of creating spaces and kind of helping decision makers think things through in more evidence-based ways, giving them that space to really kind of work through the problem. And then all the way through to kind of individual level, things like for you and I, JR, that kind of is day-to-day stuff. And I don't like calling myself an expert, but I suppose compared to some, I've just got a bit more experience. For that first-time manager or even an experienced manager, and in, sometimes an insurmountable problem for them might be a really difficult relationship with a member of staff and they right. can't see a way back from it because it's got to such a bad place and there's always a way back. And yeah. so, again, my job is to help them think a little bit differently about it, try stuff out, to try and get the relationship back on track. And again, from my vantage point, that's not an insurmountable problem. But for the person involved, when they're right in it, it can feel like there's no way out, there's no way forward. So, yeah, so that's what I mean. So that kind of gives two different examples across the spectrum. Has the pandemic and the environment, I guess, since the pandemic really changed the kinds of things that you're doing with with your clients? Great question. Yeah. I imagine for you and for many, many people who work as consultants or coaches, yeah, I think huge numbers of people asking me to deliver workshops or give keynote talks on resilience and well-being. Obviously mm. as a as a qualified psychologist in terms of workplace psychology, that's bread and butter for me. But it wasn't always the thing that I would typically be asked for pre-pandemic. It was often around workshops on giving feedback or coaching skills. And now nine times out of 10, I will be contacted and asked to run a kind of give a webinar, run a workshop on resilience, developing resilience or different aspects of well-being, which I found really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much discussion. I wonder whether mental health topically, right? I'm using it sort of broadly speaking, well-being, mental health related topics would be getting so much prominence if we hadn't had the pandemic. Absolutely. I think that's the question. I think you're right. It's hard to know. I mean, certainly you could feel the tide starting to turn in terms of the way that people talked about mental health topics and the willingness to, but it just feels like the pandemic was a massive accelerant on that and it's brought it to the forefront. It's much more prominent. I mean, we were doing this discussion during Mental Health Awareness Month, so I guess it's sort of timely in that respect. I think the pandemic's acted as the the catalyst for a lot of things. It makes me wonder if we would see 
the nurses strikes, the junior doctor strikes in the NHS that we're seeing at the moment if we hadn't had the pandemic. And it makes me wonder a lot of things, some of the the understandable unrest and the questioning of systems and kind of, of decisions makes me wonder, yeah, if we would be as challenging of those if the pandemic hadn't happened. So I'm, I'm kind of pondering the same things as you really, JR. Yeah, here in the UK, it's been worsened by the fact that inflation was over mm-hmm. 10% at one point. And so mm-hmm. you start really feeling the pinch of that if you were living close to paycheck to paycheck. And I think that's certainly precipitated a lot of the strikes that we're seeing as well. But yeah, I mean, there's just, it's been, there's certainly been a lot of social changes that have mm-hmm. happened that the pandemic at least played some role in either instigating or catalyzing in whatever way. So one of the things I know you focus on is is helping women transition into entrepreneurial activities and out of the corporate world. That was the subject of your doctoral research, right? It was, yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the challenges that women face as entrepreneurs that men don't and or that men don't face to the same degree that kind of are the basis of the work that you do with your clients on that topic? Yeah. So my study didn't compare men and women. It's a diff- that's a difficult question to answer. But I think broadly, women, and it doesn't matter if they're setting up their business or they're working as a in a leadership position in a corporate role, we know that still in many countries around the world, and if I take the UK, because obviously that's where I'm from and where I'm based, we know that women tend to take on that that we call emotional labor so they take on kind of the additional work the second work in many households as well if, if there are children involved often they'll be the primary carer as well as trying to hold down big job or trying to set up their business and I'm not saying that's the case in kind of all partnerships but it's broadly the norm so there might be mm. some outliers and so what was really interesting to me with one of the studies that I conducted so I spoke to a number of women at various points in the first three years of running their setting up and running their business, only half of them were parents or carers. More than half were in their late forties, early fifties, and I found that really interesting. We're seeing stuff in the press about almost like the new lease of life that being a woman in your fifties can now be. There's a beautiful phrase. Davina talks about it in her menopause book. But basically this idea that it's not the final act, it's yeah, it's and it's a time of renewal. And and I found that really as a woman nearing 50, I found that really interesting around and is that because for some of them who were parents or carers, they no longer have that responsibility. And so it's kind of given them that free they're a bit freer mm. to take the risks and put in the kind of the work that you need to when you set up on your own. So to answer your original question, it's a difficult one for me to answer because I didn't do a comparative study, but I think some of it is systemic. So kind of having these additional labor roles, such as being a carer, some of it is psychological, although I deliberately wanted to look at the strengths women have. I didn't want to look at what they didn't have because there's countless studies that do that already. that just perpetuate this myth, this idea that women lack confidence, that they don't have this skill or or this, that and the other. And I wanted to turn that on its head. So mine is a strengths-based piece of research that looks at, okay, these women are succeeding. What are they doing that's enabling them to succeed? So what are some of the other strengths? You've highlighted a few, but what are some of the other ones that stood out in your research? Oh, here's the really interesting thing. So one of the studies that I conducted was, we call a systematic review, where I looked at 
the previous research that had gone before over the last 20 years in the 21st century. And quite a lot of the research suggested that women business owners tended to not be very good and lack skills around some of the harder technical competence around business planning and all that stuff and Mm. financial management and marketing and and my main study found the opposite. The women that I spoke to, actually, ironically, they're the strongest things they brought to the table were the kind of the hard technical competencies. So they all brilliant at business planning. They had really clear business plans. They were on top of their, their kind of their set to their context, doing their research. They were clear on their competitors. They'd done their benchmarking. They had really clear marketing plans. So kind of that, my study flew in the face of what kind of previous research was suggesting. And then a big focus on relationships. (laughs) You made this transition out of the corporate world into becoming your own boss. What prompted you to make the transition? Bad life events, really. So I thought about it for quite a number of years. I ended up in a really tough leadership role in local government and it was hard i mean brutal physically mentally i mean i started off mike i've been a kind of an occupational psychologist for 25 years and i started off at the bbc and then went into local government and then ended up moving further and further away from my original kind of professional training into really big strategic leadership roles around it and customer services and so on and so forth and so whilst they were really stretching and great opportunities career-wise, it's actually taken me further away from my first love and yeah. what I like to think I'm naturally good at anyway. And so I had this little voice back in 2013, kind of I'd go on holiday with my husband and, and I'd, be, I'd take a notepad and it'd be like, oh, one day I'll yeah. work for myself. And I'd write down all these ideas and then it would come to nothing. And it, it kind of got became like the boy who cried wolf I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to leave. And my husband, my family, my friends would be like, yeah, yeah. So that went on for a few years. And then February 2016, my dad died unexpectedly the week before mm. his 70th birthday, um, wow. just out of nowhere and knocked me and my family for six because it was so unexpected. And I mean, I was completely blindsided by that. And the little voice started to get louder, but I kind of quelled her. And then the month after my dad's funeral, my mum got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And oh, wow. I thought, okay, the, the universe is trying to tell you something here. Because I was 42 at that point, which I think when, you, when we're in our early 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, they're quite almost natural transition points, like the kind of points where we ponder, do I want to carry on doing what I've been doing? And um, I was on holiday with my husband not long after mum's diagnosis and I said I think I'm going to do it this time and I mean he's brilliant he's my biggest cheerleader I'm the main wage earner in my family and it's not an easy decision we've got mortgage to pay and and he said I'll support you whatever and yeah came back from holiday and gave my resignation letter into my boss so for me it took some of the worst things we can ever face as humans to be the catalyst and fast forward all those years later when I was doing my research and it kind of made me curious because what I was finding in coaching sessions with many of the women that I coach who are in leadership positions in organisations, these amazingly talented women who've kind of worked their way up to these big positions, but in our kind of one-to-one environment, it's almost like a conspiratorial behind the hand 
I don't think I want to step up into the chief exec role or mm. I don't think I want to go into the chairperson role or or whatever. I've always wanted to set up my own yoga business or I want to be a coach, but I don't think I can. And it just got yeah. me really curious around what's that about? What is it? Why do we talk ourselves out of this? Yeah. And why does, for so many of us, does it have to be these monumentally catalytic, often catastrophic events that then give us the launch pad? And that's why I wanted to kind of look at the women who it hadn't been a catastrophic event and they had gone on and set up their business after having very successful corporate careers. I'm conscious I've gone all around the houses, JL, but that kind of tells you why and how I made the decision and then also what it's made me curious about as a woman in business. And you went and did your PhD like relatively recently, right? So you made that decision as well along, along the way. Yeah. I did. Pre-pandemic, I started it. And for me, it was the right, it was time. So one of my other roles okay. is I teach at several universities, but I'm a program director at Birkbeck. Um, so I'm kind of co-program director for the first part of the professional doctorate. And what's always really interesting to me is our students are so impatient. They want it all now. And when I'm contacted on LinkedIn, I sometimes get contacted on LinkedIn by young up and coming psychologists. You know, they've just finished their MSc. They're mm. in their 20s and they want the doctorate now. And and they're hungry for it now. And I always kind of give myself as an example. I give one of my colleagues as an example. You know, I, I did mine in my late 40s. Yeah. One of my cohort did hers in her early 60s. And actually, it's about doing it at the right time for you rather than some yeah. arbitrary timetable. I think to do doctoral level research, you've got to love it because there will be the inevitable, as Shakespeare says, dark night of the soul, where you're like, I can't mm. do this. I'm leaving. I can't do it. And if you love your subject, if you're passionate that what you're doing is going to help and be good in the world, it kind of keeps you going. And that's what it was for me. So, yeah, I started mine in my mid 40s pre-pandemic and then the yeah. pandemic hit and my mum was starting to die at that point as well. So I was trying to look after her mm. from afar and it was a lot. It was a lot. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, as a business owner, as I'm sure, I mean, lots of us found this, I was on track to have my best ever financial quarter march 2020 like the mm. biggest ever it blew my mind and to see every single bit of work come out yeah. on the 26th of march where everybody just panicked but kind of the resilient part of me just turned it up we had savings and i turned it on its head and i thought i'm just going to use this time to really dig into my research and that's all i did and then work started to kind of come back in which then i got annoyed about because i was like i'm doing my research but yeah in a way I often get asked by people who are curious about doing doctoral research, Did the was the pandemic a terrible time to do it? And actually, for me personally, it was a brilliant time because yeah. it was so quiet yeah. work-wise. It was hard trying to do all the things and, as I say, look after my mum. Yeah. So you had this little voice in your head going back to your decision to jump into the entrepreneurial fold. It's been seven-ish years. Mm -hmm. How have you found the experience of being a business owner? Love it. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I made, I made some real cock-ups at the start, which I've shared on other podcasts. And I talked to kind of business coaching clients about, and I talked to my students about, and, um, but I love it. I love the being responsible. I love the freedom, the autonomy, being responsible just for me. I often get asked if I, if I'm going to grow, if I'm going to have employees, like I've never thought about that. I get very well-meaning, yeah. often patronizing people slide into my DMs on LinkedIn. And I always say it's a very deliberate decision. I don't want employees. I've had employees, yeah. you know, 
I ran big services and it's a headache and I'd like just being responsible for me and I use associates, although sometimes my clients don't want the associates, but part of the issue, isn't it, when your name is your brand and but now I absolutely love it. I've um it's interesting because somebody said to me or asked me recently, Oh, would you ever go back into full time employment? And I said, Well, never say never, but actually I just really like the freedom and I've tentatively put a semi foot back in. I have this part-time role at um, Beck and I love the role, but yeah, it's reminded me of some of the kind of the corporate kind of working in a corporate environment and the bureaucracy and the rules. And so I'm just grateful. I only have to do that like a couple of half days and then I get my freedom back with Halo. I love it. How does that work? Complement what you do in your business, the teaching that you do, the program director role that you have? So I've been teaching for a long time, even when I worked in local government. And again, that was a very deliberate career move. So as I mentioned earlier, I was getting bigger and bigger corporate leadership roles, which were taking me further and further away from pure workplace kind of psychology. And I knew that I wanted to go back at some point and I wanted to keep my hand in and I love teaching. Mm. And so I kind of got my first lecture, lecturing gig. Um, at City University, which was my alum when I did my MSA back in 2009. And so I've had lots of guest and visiting lecturer work, even when I was in local government. So I was already doing that and very used to kind of having to balance the things. In terms of now, I'm just super organised. I'm very, very boundaried and unapologetic about Mm. the boundaries to my time. So Monday afternoon, Wednesday morning for me is my Birkbeck and then the rest of the time is Halo. I don't tend to work Fridays. I certainly don't do client delivery on Fridays and it works. I'm super strict about it. And people, I think I've not had touch wood. I've not had an issue um, today. I kind of make it work. And I think because I'm very clear in my communication, I'm very bounded and I pride myself on, on kind of communicating to people where I'm at, what's up, how they can get hold of me and the boundaries around that. It seems like in general, entrepreneurs kind of go one of two ways. They go the way of I'm going to keep my boundaries. I'm Mm. going to keep the scope limit. Mm. I'm going to keep things more Mm -hmm. fully in my control. Mm. And then there are people who just go, 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 go. And it turns out to be like a really difficult lifestyle for them because they're constantly working and thinking about their business. So Mm. to credit to you that you can sort of make it all work, keep your boundaries, be clear in that. And the two complement each other as well. And they again, they always, even before I took on the Birkbeck role, you was a module convener at Kingston on their master's program. And clients really like the fact I'm an evidence-based practitioner. Hmm. So I always get feedback on workshops or even in coaching sessions, people feel a sense of confidence and reassurance that I know what I'm talking about because it's really yeah. grounded in in kind of good research. Conversely, students really like the fact that I've got practice. Yeah. So I'm not just spouting a load of theories and concepts. Actually, I talk to them about this one's a difficult one to apply and you might need to bend it or this is what it means in kind of this context. And I feel really lucky It's not lucky. It's hard work. And I'm just really diligent. But there is an element of luck, I suppose. But the bulk of my client base is I don't have to do any of those sleazy salesy sliding Mm. into people's messages. My work is either word of mouth to somebody mentions me or repeat business where people kind of come back to work with me again. And the majority of clients say they really like the fact I've got this, what they see as a unique blend of deep understanding and insight around the psychology of humans in the workplace. 
Mm. and real world experience so i've lived and breathed it and i'm very proud of the battle scars that i've got i'm not again just spouting a load of stuff at people in really hard jobs and i've got no idea of, of what that feels like so they really like that what they see is a very unique blend yeah i mean there are a lot of people out there who will call themselves a coach or weigh in on something without necessarily the the level of practical experience training research basis that sounds like you go into your work with and it has to make a difference right Mm. you've just got a lot more that you can really draw on one of the things that also interested me about your background was i think particularly in your time with local government you were working on things that weren't as directly psychology related right right. customer experience and innovation and strategy and marketing and pr and communications i mean that's a pretty broad array of things i'm kind of curious how did that play into your strengths and how did it kind of push your comfort zone? My first foray. So I'd gone into local government. I mean, look, JR, my plan was, I, you know, back in my early 30s, like many of us at that age, I had this grand plan, very traditional, go into local government for two years and then I'll go to central government and then I'll go into a blue chip. That was my, it was like, it didn't work like that. I fell yeah. headline and sinker in love with the sector and what it stood for. But I started off as head of organisational development, which very much in my wheelhouse, it's one of the aspects of workplace psychology. Did some amazing work with my team in three years. And then I got a bit bored. There's a, there'll be a theme in a minute. Got a bit bored. And that's dangerous because when I get bored, I start to tinker and break stuff. And as it happens, one of the things that I'd done was design and implement um, a flagship leadership programme. It's an award-winning leadership programme. And one of the first people that went on that program was the director of IT and transformation, Aiden. I was out for coffee with him and he said, I've got secondment coming up. Somebody's going on maternity leave and, and I'd like you to consider going for it. And I thought, oh, okay, what is it? And he, so he said what it was, head of strategy yeah. and innovation within IT. And I thought, is he on a laugh? He said, I don't want somebody with a traditional IT background. He said, I really like your approach in organizational development. I like the kind of the approach that you take in terms of engaging with people. And he said, and that's what we need. We've got to develop and roll out a really ambitious technology agenda We've got to develop um, our five-year technology strategy and I'd like you to head it up. And of course, I did that initial thing that lots of women do, which is, well, I don't have all the skills, so I can't possibly. And then I had a chat with some really good colleagues who were like, of course you can do it. So I went for it, got it and had a blast for like nine months and Mm. loads. I think as much as I brought to the table in terms of engaging with lots of different stakeholders to develop a strategy because I don't believe in like developing a strategy on your own in a little room with a dark flannel a cold flannel on your head I think you should build it with the people I learned loads I learned about contract negotiation contract management because we had a big IT partner it's like a hundred million pound contract and it wasn't being Mm. managed very well and so I had to rebuild the relationships with the partner loved that but it Boy, it was stretching. I remember asking to go through the contract, naively thinking it would be like that. And I remember our legal Probably. team, no, <laughs> bought in three trolleys of boxes. I nearly cried. It was just brilliant. And I'm still in contact with many of the people that I was lucky enough to work with. And then that's a comment that started to come to an end. And I thought, oh, I'll go back to OD. And then the director of customer services reached out and said, I really like what you've done over there with Aiden. I've got a job coming up here. Would you like to Mm. come and work with me and apply for the job? And I said, okay, what is it? Head of customer strategy. I saw you did this strategy work, really liked what you did, but you'd also be responsible for complaints. I was like, okay. 
and I gave it a go. And that was hard, like being responsible for corporate complaints, social care complaints, having to liaise with the local government ombudsman, all that stuff. Oh, I'm sure. And we were on the naughty step. We were one of the worst local authorities in the country. We'd been on the Daily Mail for our response time. And, Mm. oh, gosh. And then turned that around, built an amazing team. And then what started to happen is the chief exec would give me gifts in terms of, you've done really well. Let me give you the gift of being now responsible for freedom of information so every time we did really well and I turned stuff around I'd get given more broken stuff and really loved it and then I kind of met my nemesis I met my kind of Everest if you like which was Mm. lots of restructures and still continuing in all sectors particularly the public sector and the head of communications was leaving to another job and so the the new chief exec and my boss were like well Actually, there's a bit of an overlap with what Haley and her teams do. So why don't we just merge her service with that service to create a super service? <laughs> and so I, I was made redundant and went for the job and got it. And oh my, that was hard. That was hard yeah. because I had half my service who'd kind of come with me from the an amazing journey. And the other half who were like, who is she? She's not a journalist by background. She doesn't have mm. a PR background. I started to be attacked by local bloggers. It was brutal. And then I was right in the middle of the politician. So the head of comms in any central or local government, you are right in the heart oh, yeah. of the lion's den. And, and um, the first year in that role, which so that was the toughest role, but ironically, it was the longest role that I was in in local government. And when I left local government, I had to do a bit of Madonna and rebranding because when I left local government, everyone had forgotten that I started off as a psychologist. So everybody was like head of comms, comms expert. And I was like, no, so I've done such a good job of convincing everybody that I knew what the blooming hell I was about and doing. But my first year was brutal. And then I kind of put things in place to help me. I got support and I became the resilient Hayley that I had been in the past. Mm. And that really helped me navigate. And I think I'm really good at building relationships and Once I started to build relationships with other heads of communications, with partner organisations, that's when the magic started to happen again. But yeah, it took me going to a really bad place in that first year, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And I do a lot of work with comms teams now on resilience, on well-being, and that's where I kind of bring my experience during that time, but also the psychological understanding as well. You do some writing work as well, right? Yeah, I I dabble here and there. I mean, you say it's very nice of you to say I do a bit of blogging. I do guest writing. So I have done kind of free pieces, paid pieces for people. Um, Yeah, it's not I have to be in the I don't know about you. I don't know if you do writing, but I have to Mm, be in the mood for it. I do. I have to be in the mood for it. I'm not one of these people who can like every morning I write for like an hour. I've got to be in the mood for it. Yeah, I would like to write more than I have the time and patience for at the moment. Maybe at some point, I just haven't cracked the code on how to how to really fit it into my life in the way that I want to. So it tends to go in fits and starts. Same. Yeah. So if you look at my blog, there'll be like a flurry of I might have done like one a month for like a few months, and then there'll be like this massive gap. And yeah, I got asked to write or be an author, a joint author, a new book that's coming out for occupational psychologists. And I got asked to write one of the chapters. And um, mm. so I dabbled a toe in, because yeah. I get asked a lot, are you ever going to write a book? And I like the idea of having author, yeah, but I also know the hard graph that goes behind it. I know a lot of people, I've got a lot of friends who've written books and yeah. 
so writing a chapter in a book for a big publisher. It's a test. A really test. nice, yeah, a bit of a yeah. test. Felt like a nice compromise. I mean, let's see when the edits come back. I might yeah. feel very differently, JR. Yeah, everybody I know who's written a book <laughs> says that the first time they sit down with their editor, it's it's just a brutal experience, oh. Oh, a massively humbling experience. But yeah. saying that, I've been through the doctoral thesis where it gets ripped apart, and then you have the pleasure of sitting down for three hours with two professors who then talk, ask you in minute detail questions about every single chapter. And at the end of it, if you're not crying, you're a blubbering mess on the floor, and you think you've failed, and then they're like, no, you passed. So yeah. yeah, so I always think that's like a good trial run for writing a book. If you can get through that, you can get through writing a book with a with a publisher and an editor. And you do drawings as well, your sketch <laughs> note do. drawings. Yeah. I love did, the drawings. How, yeah. How did that come about? So, you know, I mentioned very earlier that I made lots of mistakes in the early mm. stages of my business. So my first few months of setting up Halo, so this back in 2016, there is nothing more humbling. And it made me realize actually how arrogant I'd become. So I was in a big role. If I picked up the phone, people answered. Right. And so I left. 29th of July, 2016, Monday, 1st of August. I was like, why is no one ringing? Hmm. Anyway, got to September, got to October, got to November, and it's like tumbleweed. And I was like, what's going on? Why aren't people responding? And so I, I had a good talk with myself because I thought, hang on, something's happening here. And seeing your savings go down is incredibly humbling. Yeah. And there were a few things. I, I hadn't done a proper business plan. I mean, come on. And I realized that I wasn't marketing well enough or consistently enough or in a focused way. I was just doing random things at random. I was like posting randomly. I was writing the odd random blog post. I was trying to talk to everyone, the world and his wife and not really speaking to anyone. And so I thought something's got to change. And there were two things that made the difference. So I read a book called Million Dollar Blog, absolutely brilliant book. And ultimately that's about you've got to show up consistently whatever that looks like for you, because people yeah. will then come to expect it. So I thought, okay. And then I happened to be scrolling on Twitter one day and I came across this thing called a sketch note. I've heard of it before by a brilliant sketch noter called Tan Mavora. And it blew my mind because I've always been someone who likes to simplify what I think are unnecessarily complicated things. It's what I've always had feedback on, like in 360 feedback. People have always said one of my strengths is cut to the heart of things and simplify stuff and help people understand. So I looked at this one page sketch and I thought, I really like, I've always liked drawing. So of course I went on Google, how to sketch note. And there was a free online course at that point um, run by a guy called Matt. He doesn't do it anymore. And he'd set me like little tasks and I'd practice. So the first one I ever did will never, ever, ever. It's in a vault somewhere, like in Harry Potter, guarded by a dragon. I thought, I really like this. And so I tentatively, I tried a couple more and then I thought, just do it, put one out there. And I became really overwhelmed. I think my first one was on Groupthink that I put out in the public world and the response was phenomenal. So I'd gone from like silence to just, yeah. and I thought, oh, and I hit on something. And so I didn't do them like every week the way that I do now, but I do like a cut one or two a month and always got a really good reception. And then I, I kind of thought... Well, you have to read a lot of research as a psychologist and the people that you work with will never get to see that research, even though she's, how could you bridge the two? I know, sketch notes or blog posts or both. Right. And right. so that's kind of 
what really spurred me on. And yeah, I've been doing them ever since. I get commissioned to do them now and again, which always yeah. blows my mind. But um, I try not to do that because I, I don't always feel joyful about that. Mm. I get most joy when I've chosen the one that I want to do and that I'm really immersed in it. And it's it's kind of reignited my memory of the concept that I'm drawing about. And um, yeah, I enjoy the ones where it's my decision to do yeah. it. I'm not being paid to do it. And um, yeah, I'm always blown away when when some of them go viral. Adam Grant asked to use one in his last book, Think Again. I'm a bit of a fangirl of Adam's and I actually thought it was a spoof. I, I genuinely thought it was a phishing scam. Thank goodness for his tutorial team um, at Viking Penguin Random House. They kept going because I kept thinking, oh, it's, it's spam. This is, they're having a, somebody's <laughs> having a laugh. They know that I follow Adam and yeah, yeah, three emails it took them to go, this is, do not even, this is a real email, Hayley. <laughs> We're yeah. asking your permission. Yeah. I thought, oh my, and we want to pay you. And I was like, oh, maybe it is real. Do you license them out otherwise or do you? I give them freely. So again, yeah. I get some very well-meaning advice. Yeah. Like you should monetize this, Haley. You should monetize. You give away too much for free. You should monetize. And like, I'm an idiot. And I always say, I know I could monetize, but I choose not to because for yeah. as many people that can afford to work with someone like me, and I'm not cheap, I'm not the most expensive, I'm good value. Um, there will be hundreds who cannot, will never be able to afford to work with someone like me or, or someone like you. And that doesn't sit well with my values, my ethics. And so how can I best serve and help them? Well, in a limited way, in my own small way, I can give them free access and free use of stuff. And so that's why my e my sketchnote ebooks, the other ebooks I've written, the tools that I've created will always be free. That's my mm. apps. That will never ever change. I don't want to monetize. Thanks. I certainly think about what to give away and mm -hmm. the overall business mix of what I'm doing. I mean, it, I'm spending money on this, right? So mm -hmm. I want to get some money back in return at some point. But one of the reasons I started down this path in the first place was to help other people with mm. their careers because. Mm. So many people are not happy or fulfilled and need the help. And it's, I don't know what it is. There's some sort of like inertia or quicksand or whatever that just mm. sort of keeps them from addressing these issues. Mm. But I've thought a lot about how much is free, how much, and then when do you have to start paying for things? So. Yeah. And look, I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not some purely altruistic. Yeah. I'm a businesswoman and I'm also a working class South Londoner who grew up in the 70s, you know, in a very poor household. So I, I like a bit of money. I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk, if you've heard of Gary Vaynerchuk. Of course, yeah. So, yeah, who hasn't? He talks about kind of generosity and mm. actually generosity should be a, a core. If you have that naturally as part of who yep. you are, you'll always be a successful business person. And I remember reading this years ago and thinking, all right, Gary. But now I get it. And yeah. the amount of work I get as a result of the sketch notes that I put out, the free stuff, mm. people always comment on it. People always say, I downloaded your free 70 page change ebook and it really helped me. And then it, there's something else going on that I'd like to work with you on. Yeah. So as I say, whilst my the reason why I keep stuff free does come from a very positive place. I know that it might also lead to some people coming back at some point and wanting to work with me on a paid basis. So there's an element of marketing to it as well. Of course. 
Yeah. Of course. So the amount of times I get somebody contact me saying, oh, one of your sketch notes popped up on my LinkedIn and it really yeah. resonated with me. And it was like you were speaking to me. It's like you'd seen into my very soul the issue that I'm working on and I'd like your help, please. So, yeah, yeah. of course, it's absolutely without a shadow of a doubt. That's good. The different things you've done over the years, what would you say are the strengths that that you've been able to draw on across all of those different things? I think creativity. And that's really now able to shine because of the freedom that I have. I think my biggest strength, I think, as I touched on earlier, is is my ability to build and maintain really good relationships, like genuine relationships. But also one of my absolute favorite things to do in the world is to connect people to other people. I love it. Um, I'm a bit of a matchmaker. And so if I'm mentoring someone, for example, so once a year, I'll, I'll mentor somebody doing their MSc. So they're just starting out on their psychology journey and and something might come up in a conversation where I'm like I'm going to introduce you to this person and or I might introduce a client to another client obviously with their permission because there's a real kind of symmetry and one of the things that I often find with many of the middle managers that I work with is they can feel really lonely they think it's just them they Mm. think they're the only ones screwing up they're the only just like I'm rubbish and it's like let me tell you Every person I meet feels the same thing yeah. and there's somebody else facing the same thing. Would you like me to introduce you? So yeah. I, I'm great at relationships. Haven't always been. I've definitely got a lot better as I've got older and more comfortable in my own skin. And I love yeah. connecting people. What have you had to work on developing? My husband says I live in a constant state of annoyance and um, I am a very impatient person. And, and when your husband dad, says you live in a constant state of annoyance, how does that make you feel? it's like a little i mean i say rotten things back to him but um, he's the nicest kindest person yeah ever but there is this thing where i'm just like if you haven't delivered it in like half a second then yeah i can be a bit of a monster it holds me to account actually i'm really grateful that i've got somebody who is able to call me out on my bs because not yeah. everybody does, because I know we don't often see ourselves the way others see us. I know I can yeah. be a bit intimidated. That's never my intention to be intimidating because I've got quite a quick brain. I think in a certain way and I've done a lot. And I know for some people who are starting out, certainly in my profession, that can be intimidating. And hopefully my ability to build relationships helps kind of quell that. But that's why you need people who can call your stuff out. And it also used to come up in 360 degree feedback, JR. And there is something about either hearing from a loved one or seeing in black and white from your direct reports the thing that you know about yourself mm-hmm. that you're hoping you've hidden and by god you haven't they've seen you so i remember one of my direct reports i don't know who it was didn't need to know who it was said Haley needs to understand that everybody thinks at the speed of light like she does the rest of us mere mortals i remember it word for word she needs to give the rest of us mere mortals at least five minutes to reflect on something <laughs> i remember reading that and it was a bit like oh but sometimes we need that. And I think to answer your question, I've got a lot better, not just at being open to feedback, but I'll actively ask for it as well. It was one of the things that I used to do a lot towards the end of my tenure in local government. I would ask team, my direct reports, how have I helped you this month? How have I hindered you? Yeah. Those are great Um, questions. mm, When I ran a management workshop last week, and it's really interesting. A couple of them said, oh, the how you hindered is quite negative. You could rephrase it. It's like, don't rephrase it. It's meant to be that question. And why are we so averse to asking questions like that? Sometimes we are a hindrance yeah. to our staff. I heard somebody speak a long time ago, 
guy had enjoyed a, a lot of success in his career, came up through the ranks at Goldman, had written a few books on sort of leadership and developments. He had a lot of credibility. And one of the points he made at the time was, I will end every meeting with, how can I help you? Or what can I be doing better? Right. Wonderful. And I won't let them out of the room until I get an answer. Their answer is, how you could help us is by getting out of our way so we can get out of this room. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But at least it forced, Absolutely. it made it a two-way discussion, right? And after Absolutely. a while, people get comfortable with that. They know that it's not a setup, right? Yeah. A little bit like your Adam Grant thing. They develop trust that it is real and it's coming from the right place. That's always been core for me is role modeling. I don't believe in telling people to do stuff that I wouldn't do. And so if I'm saying to you, asking for feedback is a good thing to do, then I need to show you not only ask for feedback, but I need to show you how to respond to it, even when it hurts. Last question. If you were going back to give advice to your younger self, what would it be in terms of how to think about your career journey? I know it's unintentional, but it's a beautiful segue from what I just said. I would say to my younger self, not everything has to be done by next year. Your career is not only a marathon, and so you've got to have the stamina for it. It might take you to places that you didn't even realize you could go or wanted to go and be open to that. It's interesting. I was thinking literally maybe just this morning coming into work that life is short, careers are long. I'm trying to come up with a more eloquent way to say it, but you know. That's eloquent enough. I love that. I really feel like it's true. Life just (laughs) hurdles by. And at the same time, careers are really long. You don't have to have all of that success in the first few years and you can try different things and have reinventions of yourself and all of that. And you might have more than one career. I I can't remember. Oh, it's awful of me. I can't, I won't be able to reference this, but I did read something that suggested that the generation that's entering the workplace now, so those in their kind of early twenties now, won't just have kind of five or six different jobs by the time they're Right. Um, 40. They'll have probably had two or three different careers. And that's and, good. Yeah. And for somebody, as I say, who grew up in a different arm um, generation X and the slacker generation, apparently, where it's very traditional and you stick with one career and work your way up kind of hierarchically. I think I, I love the creative variety driven side of Haley is like, wow, yeah. that's brilliant. And I've done yeah. it myself. Yeah. Dabbled in a bit of IT, dabbled in a bit of PR and comms, became a comms expert. Who knew? Who knew? Came back to psychology. Well, some of us, we do go back to our roots eventually, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you. I appreciate, again, you making the time. Good to get to know you a bit. Yeah. Um, and thank you for asking me, JR. I'm always really yeah. honored when people ask me to jump on their podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. And you have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you. It was fun having Haley on the show today. Uh, we hadn't met before, and that's always fun for me. It was good to hear her talk about her career journey and the range of different things she's done and what she's learned along the way. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. 
If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.